This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome, everybody, to It's a Crime. Thank you so much for joining me this Saturday afternoon. I want to welcome you to a very special guest. Most of you know who he is. His name is Mike King from Profiling Evil, as most of us know. However, I want to also add the crazy background that I didn't even know about Mike. I knew a little bit about Mike, but I really want to. So let me just hold your breath for a sec, Mike. It's going to be a little bit, and then we're going to, you can say a big giant hi to everybody. I'm interested to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you may know, but wow. So some of you don't know this. Mike has been in law enforcement for four decades. He is the global director of fraud and emergency communication solutions. I'm going to have to breathe quite a few times in this. This is amazing. He has helped the largest police departments in the world implement and operate real-time crime centers, intelligent fusion centers, and emergency communication centers. He has served as a co-chair as co-chair of the FBI's VICAP, which is Violent Criminal Apprehension Program National Advisory Board. We can keep going. I can't. This is amazing. Mike retired from the Department of Public Safety after a distinguished law enforcement career. He was also the director of the Utah Criminal Tracking and Analysis Program, guiding their mission to investigate and facilitate collaboration on unsolved homicides, sexual assaults, and missing persons. And he is an internationally recognized speaker and trainer and an author and co-author, co-author of several books. Amazing, Mike. We love Where you. Where did you get all that? That's, uh, that's right amazing. Right from Profiling Evil about us. Oh, well, they're <laughs> good. Okay. I've been everywhere, Mike. Come on now. <laughs> Welcome so much to the show. We are so happy to have you on. It's going to be a great show. We have lots to discuss. Welcome, welcome. Well, thank you, Linda. Of course, you know, I said uh, on Monday evening when we had that roundtable a couple of weeks ago with a bunch of YouTube creators that you you were the first YouTube creator that I went to and you were gracious enough to give me some advice. And, uh, it, you know, I mean, it's, I can't believe it's been six months and and I'm hoping uh, today we break the 50,000 mark. It just is just remarkable to me. Yes, absolutely. And if you aren't a subscriber yet, please go over to Profiling Evil at the end of the show or just now quickly and subscribe to his channel. You have amazing guests on the show. You have an amazing uh, channel. And I mean, you've grown so quickly in the last six months and you're just an absolute asset to the community. Of course, with your background is just that extra level and you're just a great guy. So you're my buddy. Uh, well, No, <laughs> that so goes two ways. Thank you so much. Crazy, right? This last year, how we got here. 
It's crazy. It, it has been amazing. And, and you know, uh, kudos, kudos to Chris, who's starting his own channel. Uh, Chris showed up on so many of my uh, shows. was never the intention in the beginning. Uh, it just naturally kind of happened. It was so fun to uh, yin and yang with him. And and uh, I think we probably argued as much as we agreed. And, and I'm just so excited <laughs> for the direction he's going. I think it's great for both of you guys. I, I find it, it's not a surprise to me. I was saying this the other night. It just feels like this natural thing and it makes sense to me. I just thought, oh, cool, yes. Okay, the interview, Profiling Evil, I, it totally makes sense to me. So super excited for both of you guys. And it's just going to be, well, imagine next year when we chat next January and where this is all headed. And yeah. So, and so one of the exciting, exciting things right now is this new launch of your new book called Deceived. And I, I have a little info snack for everybody who's watching. I got to peek a little bit at the first chapter of Mike's book. I will be getting the copy of his book as well. But I, I peeked at it. Now, one of the things before we get into the meat and potatoes of what this is all about, I just off the bat want to say how... Um, your your writing and your style of writing just in the first chapter, I was so bummed. I'm like, no, 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 that's it. I want to keep turning. Honestly, I, I'm an avid reader. I read probably 12 to 24 books a year. And this one wow. was like, ah, Mike, don't do that to me. So your style of writing, you guys, I'm telling you, I haven't even read the book. I just read the first part. Definitely go. And now we're going to talk about the actual meat and potatoes. Good. Okay. So first off, I just, I'm excited. I, I love your style of writing. Okay. Well, thank you. And that's just not, that's not even pumping. If, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. In that. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know. So one of the things now, this is, uh, let me get the, I have the uh, really cool book art. Let me put that up. Okay. Let's see if we can put you on the side. And both of us oh, on the side somehow. <laughs> well, you know what? There's part of us here. I don't know if it's going to. Yeah. Okay. We'll just do that for now. This is the beautiful. Let's we'll, we'll put your picture up in the book. That that would be good. I, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> it's okay. We'll just put the book right now. I want to speak onto this. Um, is it okay, Mike, if I read the back of it? Uh, please, please do. Gosh, about, and then we yeah. can get into it. Now, Absolutely. I will say, um, before I read this, anybody who's been following the Lori Vallow Daybell case, even though it's not on this, but this is a whole nother level, um, in my opinion. And I'm just going to read this for you. All right. Deceived is a memoir of Detective Mike King's 1991 investigation and the ultimate takedown of a deviant polygamous cult called the Zion Society. For over a decade, gossip swirled around northern Utah that a secretive group of religious zealots were buying up homes to take over a developing neighborhood in an Ogden community. The homes were known far and wide for their immaculately landscaped yards. Rumors spread that a well-known landscaper in the city had proclaimed himself to be a prophet of God and was being commanded to start his own secret religion that promoted polygamy. 
It was also believed these extremists were stockpiling weapons as part of their doomsday beliefs. In reality, the leader was directing some of the most repugnant crimes against women and children ever seen in the state. The hidden atrocities of the cult may never have been discovered if not for the courage of one of its members. 36 years later, victims reconnected with each other and with the lead investigator to address the shortcomings of the criminal justice system regarding child victims. Now, before I get into, I just want to say, I'm going to, I'm just going to hide this for a sec. I just want to say to everybody that YouTube is not going to like what we're talking about. So I'm going to ask you guys to do a favor. If you can share this video, whether you want to wait to share it or not, you know, as we start talking, I do ask that you share it because YouTube will not like the content that we're talking about. And therefore, uh, because the algorithm may not share it out. This is a very, very important. Typically, I don't use these words, but this is so important that it needs to be talked about. And so I just want to say that before we get into it. Okay. so and we'll keep it classy in the comments. Mike. Anything to add to that before I continue? You know, I, I mean, I think it really says it best. And it's amazing to me because 2021, the reason I wanted to, to have this published in, in this morning, the first book shipped out, uh, we have uh, um, over 500 books that have already been pre-ordered. But um, the, the first book shipped this morning, but it's the 30th anniversary of uh, when we did the raid. It, it uh, we can talk about it in, in detail as we go through, but it, it is an investigation that changed the direction of my career. Uh, and uh, and the neat thing about this that we're going to talk about, Linda, is even as short as 20 minutes ago, it's reconnected me with some of the 32 children that we rescued as we uh, served that search warrant that morning. And uh, and I've, I've been able to um to have a relationship with those kids who are now 45 year old adults and, uh, uh, and still be a part of their life. I, I saw that in uh, your segment on Dr. Phil and it's amazing. And you guys, if you, if you don't un, um, uh, know about this, it says this case resulted in the arrest and conviction of 12 adults, 32 children were rescued and endured more than 4,000 rapes and sexual assaults. And um, I have some questions to ask you so we can get into this. Uh, basically, um, is it okay if I speak a little bit um, from what I did read in the first chapter just to set, set up what's, um, how this played out? Or maybe you could talk about it? No, no. I'm, I'm, uh, I am looking forward to just following your lead, Linda. So please, whatever you want to do. So what I read and understand is basically there's this cult and 60, a 61 year old man named Arvin was the leader, so to speak. And he had convinced these people that he is a prophet of God and interject anytime if I'm misunderstanding, he's a prophet of God, but he was doing it basically to dupe other people and form this uh, uh, cult. And so in the first chapter, my understanding is, um, and forgive me because I have her name on here. Um, she, there's a woman who came in and sat in the office and Mike ends up coming to help her because she's been sitting for a while. And she basically came in to confess that there is uh, this cult and um, there's been some sexual abuse happening. So Mike. Um, 
Yeah, no, you're you're hitting hitting it right on. So it was the weirdest experience because I uh, I'd been a police officer about 12 years. I started in a, the largest metropolitan city in in uh, our our county, and uh, and I had taken this job with the district attorney's office or, or the county attorney, is what we called it locally. And was a, a part of an undercover sting operation buying stolen cars and selling stolen cars. So I was I was a property crimes guy. I wasn't a, a sex abuse investigator. I certainly had handled those kinds of cases as an investigator and as a detective before coming over, but never carried the case through. And uh, I was in my office one early morning preparing for a major sting that we were running. And, uh, and the secretary called and said, hey, there's somebody in the lobby. Can you just talk to her for a minute? Because she's been waiting a long time and there's just nobody else available. So I was the last person on the, the rung of the ladder that they wanted to be doing this thing. And, uh, and so I, uh, I uh, went up front and I introduced myself, just a beautiful human being. She stood up. She was poised and confident. And uh, we uh, introduced each to each other, and the first words out of her mouth are, uh, "I've been involved in a sexual or in a uh, cult that's been sexually abusing children. Do you have a minute to talk to me?" <laughs> and of course, Linda, I tried to act like I hear this every day, you know, and my mind is just going a thousand miles an hour, like, "What on earth did I just hear?" Yeah. And uh, and then I took her back to my office, and that launched. Uh, the uh, first of many interviews and uh, an investigation that really changed the very fabric of how uh, sex crimes are investigated today. And and so how did this cult come come to light in 1991? This is 1991, right? So yeah, so it actually started percolating and building many years before, and and I purposely don't name the last name of this man Arvin. Uh, in fact, I, uh, uh, some of the victims were really unhappy that I didn't just go out and because they're the ones that suffered, but I didn't want to give him any credit, any credibility. Um, the, the only names that I used in here that, that are the actual names, uh, are the victims who said, I want my name there because I earned that right to stand up against this person. Um, but uh, this individual was a predatory pedophile. It's all, all there is to it. And what he did is he prostituted his religion, which early on, 20 years before 1991, he was a member of the Latter-day Saint faith, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And because of his um, ideologies and beliefs in not only polygamy, but in other kinds of things that were off the mark, the church counseled him and eventually excommunicated him or removed his membership because it was not in line with what the church was teaching. It, it didn't stop him. He went out and continued to, to teach that he was this man of God and people because he mingled it with scripture and talked that like he had some authority, people got sucked into this. But the entire purpose for his organization was so that he could have access to multiple sexual companions in adult women. And then that became like it always does, in my opinion, um, egregious and and became uh, children that was the focus of his right. sexual assaults from age, get this, from age four to 60. 
That's unbelievable. And so, so here you are, this woman walks in and, and eyes are wide open. You're taking her in and now you have to investigate what's going on. So how do you, how do you even start to investigate this? How do you investigate this? Something so crazy or so complex as this ritual abuse, as, as you call it, like, yeah, so so all of a sudden, I started as I gathered more and more information. This this uh, can you meet with this woman for a moment turned into about three hours on that initial interview. By the time it came to a conclusion, and I looked up and realized on the clock that the time had spun by, and asked if we could uh, reschedule. Um, I, I remember thinking to myself, "How am I going to put all of this into something concise?" that I can walk into the county attorney because we need somebody that's a sex crimes investigator, not, not a guy who, you know, buys and sells stolen cars. And, uh, and so I um, set up an appointment for the following morning to meet with her again, a little bit nervous that she might not show because frankly, she had been involved in the group. So she had some risk herself. And, and we yeah. explore that in the book and some decisions that were made along the way. But I walked into the county attorney and I, I laid the story out and uh, the county attorney, you know, just looked at me and said, do you believe her? And, and you know, it's, it's so critical that people know that law enforcement most of the time believes them and they believe what they are hearing. The challenge always becomes what kind of evidence and additional forms of evidence can support their right. eyewitness testimony. But I said, yeah, I believe her. And he said, then everything else stops. All of your other cases stop. This is the most important thing we could deal with if children are involved. And I, I you know, I'll um, um, never uh, forget that, that comment. Um, so I said, I need help. And he said, figure out who you need, put a team together and, and go after it. And so I immediately uh, started looking at people that in my career I had leaned on who were good interrogators, who were good tactical people, because what we learned was that we had 10 to 12 homes that were possibly fortified by semi-automatic weapons, assault weapons. Wow. That there was a survivalist mentality that it was a closed society, that if any word got out that we were going to lose critical evidence, including risking losing children. Because in these kinds of cases, um, as I learned throughout the remainder of my career, because I then became the, the ritual crime investigator for the state of Utah, um, that children sometimes disappear in these kinds of cults and situations. And so we had to become um, nimble we had to become very tactical. Uh, we almost microscopic in the way that we conducted this so that it was all completely uh, behind closed doors. And because of the urgency, Linda, everything else had to go on hold. My family, my uh, holidays, uh, whatever. And we were working uh, 15, 20 hour days uh, nonstop for uh, the next uh almost four weeks until we served the search warrant. And I can understand that. I mean, even everything on hold, I mean, there's children here, there's people who are being abused. Even if you were ordered to go home, how do you even just shut that off? 
right? You, yeah, and you don't. And when you hear these horrors, and this is a problem a police officer faces, I don't care who the, who the police officer is. When you hear these horrors, all of a sudden you're thinking, well, that that's a, a nine-year-old girl. I have a nine-year-old daughter. You know, everything becomes personalized, whether you like it or not. Yes. And you think about how you have something chewing on your mind and you ne- you don't sleep. Now compound that knowing that there are literally every day that passes dozens of rapes that are occurring and, and uh, it becomes really consuming. Uh, I don't doubt it. I mean, how can you not, if you're a human being that has a heart, right? I mean, it's really hard to separate anyways. It's something, a skill that you have to learn, especially in law enforcement, paramedics. It's really difficult not to bring your work home. And then when you're home, you, you want to be back out there to help. So, I mean, you know, yeah. I'm, now before we continue, Mike, I'm just going to, um, there's a couple people asking, will there be an audio version to this? Yes. So, um, so we, we um, are starting off with the hardbound book. Um, and uh, I am actually in the process of doing the audio. We actually pulled the profiling evil family and said, you know, do you want us to find a decent sounding voice and get some kind of cool British accent or something that sounds really cool to do this? And it was like, overwhelmingly, no, we want the voice of the investigator and so I'm actually doing the audio recording and, and yeah. we'll roll that out in a few months. So Yes. And I just put the I just put the link down below. And I know some of my mods are having it as well, but I put the link below to your book. So we're gonna continue chatting, but I just Oh wanted great, to, thank you. And I'll I'll keep doing that. But a lot of people I just saw somebody say, OMG, I have to buy this book. So <laughs> thank you, Rebel Girl 13. <laughs> I, I hope everybody out there is thinking that. You know, oh. it's in fact it's interesting because this morning I was on the phone with one of the victims who uh she uh said to me, you know, um she was a little emotional as I said, I'm mailing the copy because I though that was the first copies I mailed out this morning was to the to the the victims in the case. And um it's all good. It's okay. She was grateful uh, to see that her, uh, her story will finally be told. So, and thank you for that. Thank you for doing that. You know, one of the things I thought about. Um, okay, first off, get your Kleenex in the first chapter, even the first chapter. I'm in, sorry, in the foreword, I was already crying in the foreword. Um, <laughs> and wasn't that incredible that Dr. Ho would jump in and and write that foreword? Um, Dr. Judy Ho is is a premier uh, neuro for forensic neuropsychologist and a dear friend yes. and uh, stars on the doctors regularly and Dr. Phil and others. And she just is uh, so remarkable. But uh, anyway, that was nice of her to write the foreword. Can I read a little excerpt that she said? Cause she oh, said, sure. a book you'll want to tell your friends about a book that will leave a lasting impression with you long after you've finished it. What stuck with me most is how this book demonstrates Mike's expertise, compassion, and unwavering diligence in his investigative approach. He forged forward no matter how difficult the case details became until the victims were rescued and their cases heard. And he didn't stop there. 
in the and then he's she goes on to say in the past three decades he continued to follow members of the cult as they were released after serving their time to track their whereabouts uh, even more remarkably he kept in touch with the victims culminating in the incredible moment they reconnected as adults to recount their experiences celebrate their triumph over trauma and to applaud mike's efforts for helping them to reintegrate in society and find new lives at the core this book is a story of hope and resiliency and has, how some of the most beautiful human stories can emerge from extreme darkness and pain and i want to say too um one of the things we we see that, you know, in law enforcement, they see a lot, you see a lot, and you've seen all this horror and um, abuse, and sometimes a heart can go cold and a heart can go um, one way or another. And one of the things I was reflecting after I read this this morning is, um, I see in you an open heart, I don't see um, a jaded man. And so you're just your open heart and you've given a voice to all these people, all these children who are now adults. And um, uh, that's what it's all about in life, isn't it? Is to, is to serve and to help others and, um, and do what you do. So I'm incredibly grateful to know you. I'm incredibly grateful that you're giving this voice and I'm grateful that you didn't choose to become a, um, to become a closed hearted person person when you could have right that could have been the choice but it's clear that you're not otherwise you wouldn't no. be here you know you know what i'm saying i hope you understand what i'm saying no i i am so grateful for you saying that and you know it, it's weird i obviously as you get older you check your testosterone at the door and <laughs> uh, and you know you get a little weaker in a lot of a lot of different ways but but while um, there were some marvelous things and and folks have said some wonderful things. I'll tell you the police officers that, that uh, assisted me in this case, the kids. And, and again, I call these adult, beautiful women, uh, kids still, cause in my mind, there's still these 10 to 15 year olds. Um, they're, they're the champions, the, the County attorney who, who against all odds, uh, said absolutely no no uh, plea bargains. We're, we're putting together cases and these people are going to pay for this. Uh, it, it was a remarkable thing to be a part of. It's incredible. I, I'm so looking forward to hearing the entire story and I have more questions for you. I'm just going to get a couple comments here so we could take a breather. Breathe in. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> My diet, Dr. Pepper. <laughs> I love that stuff. I haven't had that in years. Uh, Chef Betsy says, hey, Miss Angela Lansbury, that's what she calls me, Miss Angela Lansbury Jr., both you and Mike give us info snacks on the publication date. I'm very well read on Warren Jeff's The Most Evil Human. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I worked the Colorado City group and Warren Jeff's, uh, and I know that group intimately well. But uh, the publication date is it is out now. It has started shipping this morning. Uh, we're we're going to actually get together on Wednesday night, Linda. I hope you'll you'll uh, celebrity bomb in. Uh, <laughs> we're going to just do a little kind of book signing and start signing books and ship them off. And I actually invited the director of the Children's Justice Center, which I had a part in building 30 years ago. This was the first case that went into the Children's Justice Center, which is a place for forensic examinations of children. Uh, the county attorney that I worked for actually came up with the brainchild, and it was the third uh, in the United States. And uh, they're just celebrating this year their 30th year, but this was the first case 
that came in and wow, talk about a baptism by fire. Wow. Yeah. Right. First case. And, and for you too, just. <laughs> yeah. My first case, those kids deserved a lot better than they got, but it was a crash course. Thankfully I was buoyed up constantly by pros who, who uh, understood. And uh, I was able to, to leverage the talents of some amazing folks. Oh, well, that, it, it's truly, I mean, it's incredible. And I don't even know the whole story as of yet, but it, it I mean, it's amazing. Uh, so thank you, Chef Betsy and MK. Thank you for the super chat. Uh, we have another question. Um, Shelly says, I don't think God could have picked a more perfect person to lead this. Oh. Well, that, thank, well, thankfully, uh, the, I think the God we all believe in is constantly trying to help us become better because it made me better. Yes, I I agree. That's that's the whole purpose, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so Four Sons Mom actually put a, a shortcut to the book. I also put one up. So thank you so oh, much. Good. I will do that there for a minute. And um, so people can climb thank in. Thank you. Great to see Four Sons Mom. Thank yes. you. Now, you guys can also see his link as well. I put it in the description below and also in here. So um, Judy asks, are you having a book signing here in Utah, Mike? Uh, Judy, no, um, but uh, it, it, no, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, you know, I'm just, I, I thought, you know, four people would buy this book and it's kind of like exploding. And so um, we'll just do whatever. And hopefully find, tell me where you live, Judy. Maybe I'll just drive by your house one day and drop it off. Who knows? Maybe there'll be a future one. <clears throat> yeah. Maybe we can do one in the future. <laughs> Maybe we could get Mike to go to CrimeCon and we could do it there. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> Look at me already make, making your plans for yeah, me. Yeah, please do. Book book it up. You and I'll go there and we'll uh we'll we'll uh, man a table. <laughs> there you go. I'll help. <laughs> so funny. Poor poor Tyler's gonna be like, please. Mike has to go to sleep. Stop dogging Linda. <laughs> that was like the couple weeks ago on your channel where you guys said before it flubbed me up because I was like, okay, there's so many, just keep it short. And I was like the whole time, like flubbing my words because all I keep thinking is like, I I'm probably speaking way too long. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, that was a neat night. Thank you again. So fun. Okay. We're going to continue on with this. So, so now you're starting to investigate this. And then you said about four weeks later, there's a raid, right? Yeah. What, what are you thinking? What's the concerns that you had as you prepare for this? Like, holy, there's a raid coming, you know, how do you prepare for that? And tell me about the actual day of the raid. What, what happened? Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty amazing thing, actually. Um, of course, when, when I was in patrol and, and before I came to the county attorney's office, I, I had the chance of working patrol duties. And then I went into riding police motorcycles and then I got picked up by the SWAT team. And so I spent uh, a number of years as one of the SWAT team members. And, uh, and so thankfully had a little bit of tactical understanding. But as we were putting this together, there were big challenges. One is that, um, this group was uh, purported to be about 120 adults, and uh, 
that they were heavily involved in uh, paramilitary training, that they were stockpiling weapons. They had a doomsday mentality. Um, they uh, went to the ranges. They uh, all, all of the ghost stories that you hear when you, and again, it's, I call these closed societies when we look at groups like this or the Daybells or, um, and, and within these closed societies, there are these little wild tentacle ghost stories that just kind of happen organically. And, uh, but, but you can't just write them off as a ghost story. You have to go in prepared and wondering. And so we were creating floor plans. I, I would drive my old beat up pickup truck into the neighborhood with the back filled with grass clippings, uh, just to try to blend into the neighborhood so I could go by and snap a few pictures because there was only one way into the community and one way out. And cult members owned the homes on the corners. And the word that we had from intelligence was that they were monitoring every vehicle that came in or out or every pedestrian. So there was an intel process going on internally and a defensive system put in place. All of the homes were interconnected by alarm systems. And again, think back, this is is 1991. So um, it, it's really sophisticated for that far uh, back in time. Uh, so we decided that on the morning of the raid, we could not risk the police officers' lives or the people within the home, their lives, by uh, just kind of going in and knocking on doors. And so I went to the judge and uh, and I asked for search warrants. We call them no-knock warrants that give us the authority to go in and kick a door in and go in with a full show of force. This was really concerning to us, Linda, because again, we had children in there and these children, uh, they, they don't, in fact, one of them said it best, uh, Andrea, one of the victims said, we didn't know what was going on was wrong until you told us that this was normalized for them. This was their right. life and these were their, their safety net. So we had those worries. Um, so I immediately uh, went to the police department and uh, said, I need the, the SWAT team. I went to my commander, Sergeant Don Moore. And, and I said, I need you to help me plan this raid. And, you know, this was a, a decorated former Green Beret from Vietnam and, and ran our SWAT team. And I had nothing but, uh, in fact, he'd saved my life on one uh, particular occasion. Uh, he, I had nothing but respect for him. I had been in a shooting uh, that he was involved in. Uh, he, uh, and anyway, I had nothing but faith in him. And together we started to lay out what this would look like. At the end, by the time we served the search warrant at six o'clock in the morning, we had 70 police officers, seven zero in wow. order to hit. So this was this was a huge operation. And uh and and yet because of the the sensitive nature of the case, we couldn't tell the police officers why they were coming in. And the night before the raid we assigned all 70 police officers that we had handpicked, including team leaders. And uh, they received a call that you had to be at the police department at 4 a.m. in duty gear. Well, I'll tell you what, at 4 a.m. that morning, there were a, 
a bunch of angry cops because oh, they yeah. thought they were going to be doing parade duty or something for oh, some goofy God. thing happening downtown. And, uh, and of course, as we started to lay out the case and show aerial images and maps and talk about the weapons and everything else, you could see the anger change to duty. And, um, and then we, we uh, briefed them on it. And uh, at 6 a.m., we uh, sent the signal out, and within three minutes, we had all ten homes secured. It was uh, it was just a, a incredible operation, and uh, and then of course the teams came in, the Division of Family Services came in, and we started taking children into protective custody, and started processing uh, homes for evidence. Wow! And so, what I was reading though was um, there's some. Uh, people in that neighborhood that weren't part of it. And they literally had signs on their yard saying, we're not one of them. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that is. In fact, there had been uh, rumors swirling around uh, the community for years about this group that had these immaculately landscaped yards and that they were hanging out together. And, and, uh, the, and we had estranged husbands who were coming forward saying, my wife has taken my kids and I can't get access to them. And this was a breakdown in, in the judicial public safety system at the time. And that was that every time we looked at those, we said, yeah, but it's a civil thing. You, your, your custody battle is not a police problem. And, uh, and we had nothing to suggest that there were crimes occurring, but there were um, these allegations that there was a cult that was practicing polygamy and, well, we could never uncover anything like that. But what happened is uh, it was in uh, a few of the papers uh, talking about the cult years earlier. And so <clears throat> on a weekend, the cars would just drive through like a parade trying to look at these houses and catch a glimpse of these people. And if you watched anything to do with Warren Jeffs and the Colorado City uh, folks, uh, the same thing happened down there. It became a spectacle where people wanted to just go and get a look at these people walking around in, you know, prairie dresses. Well, here it wasn't prairie dresses, but uh, so people in the neighborhood start putting signs up saying, we're not one of them because they, and I, I uh, would often laugh and I'd say, all you got to do is look at your yard to see you're not one of them because the difference is so blatant. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So um, let's, let's just take a couple of these and then we'll go back. Cause I have more questions for you. Lisa Marie says, Mike, you're truly an angel. I'm sure the kids are so thankful for you. I know I am. God bless you, Mike. Oh, that's nicely. So Maria, I don't know if anybody gets a chance, go watch the Dr. Phil episode, the, the good doc. I know lots of people uh, have lots of things to say about him, but I'll tell you, he invited me to come on the show to meet these kids for the first time face to face in 30 years. And uh, you'll get to see what, what beautiful kids they are. Yeah, I saw a little clip of that and where you're sitting in the audience yeah, yeah. if you just look up uh, Dr. Phil, Zion Society Investigator, uh, it, they, there's a little two-minute video or something where I I bobble and boob around, and, and, uh, and yeah, and it just is so great to see the kids. That's, it, yeah, probably hard, too, though, with the pandemic. You can't 
you can't couldn't go near them. Hey, like that I, was I actually I actually told the doc that I thought he was pretty sadistic to not allow me to, right? to at least go up and and uh, hug him or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I could see that being hard. Um, Dale says, is this book available in South Africa? Dale, uh, in uh, shortly, it, you can you can buy it now and pay the freight, but it's it's expensive if you're outside of the U.S. Uh, and we it will go on to Amazon. Our plan is to go uh, print demand on Amazon, where you'll be able to get it worldwide in another month or two. Um, but right now, we wanted to really focus on on hardbound. We've had hundreds of people overseas who have paid the extra twenty bucks to ship it. To them and and uh, gosh, I'm so grateful for that. But it will eventually come out, and it will also be an ebook eventually. Yeah, great. That's great. Okay, that's awesome. Karen Parker says, "Love your show, Linda." And I just got a copy of your book, Mike. So looking forward to reading it. Thank you both for all you do. Oh, that is awesome, Karen. Now I wonder how you got. If you got a copy of Deceived, I want to know where because the publisher just delivered them last night to me. So. Uh, but maybe you got one of my other ones uh, that uh, I just I'm, ordered it. Maybe just ordered. The yeah, maybe just ordered it. But yeah, th I'm so grateful for you doing that. Thank you. I look forward to the feedback. Well, so far, I read the first chapter and let me tell you, I didn't, I was, I was like, no, <laughs> there has to be more, right? Like you wanted to. And that's what even in the forward said, you just keep wanting to read more and more and more um, about this. So now once you did the raid, how many people were charged and what kind of charges uh, did you guys slap them with? Yeah. So um, we, we eventually, by the time we finished uh, there were 12 adults who were charged. Uh, those 12 adults were responsible for about 757 felony counts of sexual assault and rape of children. Um, the, now that said, they each were charged officially with about four charges because what what the county determ, uh, county attorney determined was that we we figure out how many charges will keep them uh, facing the greatest uh, level of responsibility uh, without just piling on charges and keep the rest in abeyance in case they don't come in and plead guilty at the trial. And so it was really a tactical move on his part. Uh, th this was really quite remarkable because 12 were, were charged, actually 13 were charged and 12 were convicted. One, uh, uh, back in the 90s, a defense attorney could question these children victim victims. And in one particular case, the defense attorney uh, just um, aggressively questioned a six-year-old victim and the little child just curled up on the stand and couldn't testify. And so we withdrew those uh, that charge because of that. The, the, that was so frustrating to us that it led to, um, and it took uh, decades, but it led to changing the laws where that can't happen anymore, that children can't be punished like that by a defense attorney. Um, so, so there were some some really long-term benefits that came out of this case, but there were some pioneers who really paid the price 30 years ago. I can't even imagine a six-year-old. My son is six years old. I, I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't yeah, even it, was, it was terrible. And, uh, and so uh, those 12 uh, were all convicted. 
uh, I said on the Dr. Phil show that, in my opinion, there were um, just roughly around 4,000 rapes and sexual assaults. And uh, to the T, if you watch the, that particular episode with Dr. Phil, the girls say, uh, no, double it. And so, um, you know, even as egregious and horrid as that sounds, double it is what uh, the victims had to endure. Yeah, because that's just what you can go on, right? I mean, you don't really know the exact. Yeah. That's. I I can't. It just makes me speechless. How human beings can be like that. So you. You rescued 30 32 children, right? So there were 32 children in the group. Of course, we, we claim that, that they were rescued because we, we collapsed the group and we got them into counseling. Uh, we ordered counseling. Uh, the state ordered uh, counseling. At that time, there was a brand new effort to, to do something called uh, vi- uh, victim's rights, and the state would pay for counseling. Uh, but we made some crucial errors. Those children were sent back to homes that believed that there was nothing wrong with what was going on. And so a lot of the children didn't receive counseling until many years later. And so now these days, does that happen? Or is it more like, no, it doesn't matter. That's not even a question. They're not going back. Or does it still happen? I I think there are still um, uh, cases where it happens that, that uh, the the courts so badly want children to be in the home, and the children want to be in the home that's with their parents. And uh, but if we're sending them back to the same home that was condoning or participating in that same kind of abuse, uh, it, it's it's kind of goofy sense to me to think that that we're going to have a different outcome. Yeah, yeah, you're sending them back into the fire. Yeah. So. You spoke a little bit about the victims and that now they're older, but you still call them the kids, right? Um, (laughs) How are they doing? Because I did see, like I said, that little clip and tell me, tell me more about them. You know, it's interesting. I I actually, um, because I'm always a a data driven kind of thinker, I, I, when we first got together, I sent them all a survey and I asked them to talk about what their life was like. And it was remarkable how consistent it was and how consistent their recoveries have been. Now, there have been anomalies. Uh, One of the victims ended up having a lot of children. She's uh, had a number of marriages. Uh, um, Several of the victims will not have children because they don't want to ever be in a position to worry about whether they would do something like that. So they've consciously made decisions that they didn't want to have families. And then those that have had families all uh, to the T just talk about how they really became helicopter parents who who don't let their kids sleep over uh, and they they don't trust anyone and they don't trust the babysitter or the uncle or the aunt. And boy, don't they have a reason to have these kinds of mindsets. Almost to a T, they all had to explore in their marriages incremental releases of information to their spouses. And and some of them have absolutely incredible spouses who have uh, helped them kind of grow and mature as they've dealt with these challenges. Um, some uh, have struggled almost 
all of them have struggled with education because when they were when we served the search warrant and broke the cult up, these children were all being homeschooled, and of course, homeschool meant sex and reading scriptures, and uh, and yet they were. Uh, terribly behind in other academic areas. So when they tried to matriculate back into school, uh, they faced challenges where they not only didn't fit in socially because they were just kind of odd kids growing up in this bubble, uh, but they also didn't understand things like, uh, you know, um, what current music was or current video, uh, not video, but movies and other things. And so that created conflict and many of them dropped out of school. Uh, Most uh, didn't graduate or go on to college. A few really, uh, really uh, shook the standard and went on and and found a way to get college degrees and have, have really uh, risen above. Uh, um, One in particular that I uh, had on my show, Lyndon, I don't know if you ever saw it and please folks go back and look, but look up, uh, Amber and her Raggedy Ann doll story. Um, this this girl, uh, the the furthest she attained was a third grade education. She tried desperately throughout her life to just get a GED and couldn't even pass the GED. She started stripping because that's what she learned in the cult was how to strip. And she became a very successful stripper in Los Angeles. And and uh, and and during that time, she got a another uh, person in the sex trade industry to actually use her driver's license and go take the GEDs, and she proudly holds her her GED up today. But but she had someone else win it for her because she just couldn't get past that trying to make it in her life, and she now is a successful stand-up comedian in Los Angeles, and she. Uh, uses the cult as kind of her background, and and uh, um, but these are these are amazing women who have risen above horrors that uh, people should never have to experience. Yeah, she's taking they're taking their pain and they're and they're transforming it into because it could like like we talked before it could go either way, right? And it's yeah. rising above, they could choose to not, or they can choose to. And that's what they're doing. So it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And I don't know if, if anybody, uh, uh, any of your mods can can look on my channel for uh, Amber and the Raggedy Ann story and put that link up. It's only like three minutes long. But uh, you got to know about the Raggedy Ann story. And if not, read the book. Yeah. And for, for those who aren't a subscriber yet to Profiling Evil, make sure you do go and subscribe and check out his book. Of course, we have it uh, right up here. And um, Becky says, Linda, please ask for us. I went to Profiling Evil and ordered the book. It said the first 500 will be signed for you, hoping I am in the first 500. So uh, um, what we're going to do, Linda, is uh, we're going to we're going to just keep signing them for a couple of days, even if they go if we're over. And I think we're over. Um, But uh, we we figured uh, for the next uh, couple of days through this week, I'll just keep signing every order that comes in. And, uh, and we'll make it right uh, for, the, for the first group that signs in. So That's awesome. So make sure you guys get your copy. Um, so now. Here, here's, of, by the way, here's the book, Linda. Yeah, this is, this is the real deal here. Yeah. <laughs> Who did the cover? How, what was the um, decision about the cover? How did that come to be? I'm fascinated. Yeah, isn't that creepy? So, again, if you think back, 
uh, Arvin was a landscaper who purported to be a man of God. And so the hands covered with dirt and grass praying was the symbol we thought because, again, folks, while he purported to be a man of God, make no bones about this. He was a predatory uh, pedophile. And uh, so that's that's why we use that. It, it's fascinating. I think I think it's the perfect it's the perfect thing. I just saw it. I was like, wow, what a picture. <laughs> yeah. Everything, doesn't it? Like and Tyler designed that, by the way. Good job, Tyler. If you're I know you're watching. Take care of the back office. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell us about that back office, Tyler. You know that. <laughs> I know you're watching out there. <laughs> so now, fi final question on this about your book, and then we're going to talk into the Orson and uh, Orin West. Good, good. Um, what were the lessons learned in all this? In in the yeah. So a couple of things that really changed. Uh, Wednesday night, we'll talk about it on my live. Um, but the first was that it was absolutely mandatory that there be something like a children's justice center. In some areas of the country, they're called in the United States, uh, children's advocacy centers. I've heard them of different names in different countries around the world since doing this, but yet we need to have an environment where someone other than cops interview children who are victims of sexual assault. Mm. And, uh, and so um, having forensic uh, examiners, people like a, a Dr. Judy Ho, um, that that are trained in being able to extract that information. I talk a lot in the book about Dr. Kevin Gulley, who is now deceased, who um, was able to get these little kids talking. Because you think about it, in their mind, they were told, if you ever talk about this, God will condemn you. Right. And, uh, and what a horrible thing to put something that is so special and use it as a way to control people. And we find this in, in all cults is that they they find whatever that motivation is for the cult, trying to be a better person or trying to become uh, more in tune or whatever, and they turn that against the individual to keep control of them. So uh, first and foremost, forensic examination. Second is to change the process in which children testify and not force them like we did 30 years ago to come into a courtroom as a little six-year-old sitting on a stand alone while some defense attorney badgers them and says, well, was it a blue shirt or a red shirt? What do you mean you don't know? So if you don't know that, then do you really know what happened over here? Holy cow, that, that should have never happened, but but that, that's changed. And so we see uh, that happening. Uh, we see the introduction of victims' rights that say victims have the right to do things like be notified when the suspect is getting out of prison or other kinds of things. So that's changed entirely. Um, and then we see things like victim services where we can give uh, counseling and have the state pay for that. And it's paid for by fines against these perpetrators. So the people who are responsible for committing crimes are also paying for people that are victimized to be um, taken care of, to fix broken locks on their homes or other kinds of things. Wow. I didn't know. That's cool. I didn't know. That. <clears throat> yeah. So well, some really good things have happened. And, and I explore that in the end, including something that you just won't want to miss. And, and that is where we talk about some of the challenges they faced 
and some of the resolutions that we finally got enough sense to say, wait a minute, we hadn't fixed this yet for these kids. And 30 years later, we were able to fix, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, through through something so horrific, there still can be some positives from it. I mean, as horrific as it is, there's still some things that have come for, uh, from it that actually is good in the world. Yeah. So when you heard of the Chad Daybell and Lori Daybell case, were you immediately kind of taken back to like, oh, here we go? Like, or or what were you thinking when you first when you first kind of dove into that? So you know, in the early uh, '90s, we went through this period we called the Satanic Panic, and uh, the Utah Legislature at that time <clears throat> put a bucket load of money into investigating all of the claims of satanic abuse and ritual abuse. And because I was on the tail end of this investigation, it it took about two years to get through the court process in this case. Um, The legislature hired me through the attorney general to come and, and work on ritual crime in Utah. And of course, Utah has a number of polygamous groups as a result of groups who fractured away from the Latter-day Saint faith in the 1800s when they said polygamy is no longer approved, no more polygamy. And then you always have some wacko um, offshoot that says, yeah, but I think God told me to continue it on. And, you know, I've met some some families that are living in polygamous situations, uh, Linda, that are the most incredibly wonderful people. Um, For me, this was never about consenting adults who want to do things. The problem that I found is as these societies became closed in nature, that uh, we started to see other crimes start to happen, welfare fraud and other kinds of fraud. um, And and then, of course, child sexual abuse. And so uh, we started investigating those. And I spent literally uh, three years doing nothing but traveling the state, talking to uh, polygamous communities, polygamous leaders. Uh, I was uh, cross-designated as a U.S. Marshal so that I could extend into the Western United States and investigate claims of uh, satanic crimes against children. And uh, in the end, we, we investigated hundreds and hundreds of these kinds of cases. And, and all of that's a long-winded way to talk about the Daybells to say what I found was that as different as they like us to believe they are, they're very much the same. And I I bucketed them into uh, these closed societies that I called generational groups where children are raised to think a certain way and then convert groups that recruit people in and uh, get them involved in their ideology. Nexium, groups like that would be a convert kind of group where uh, Warren Jeffs would be a generational kind of a group where children are raised up to become the next generation of involved individuals. And infiltrating and breaking down a generational group is so much harder than a convert group because they they have, you know, so much more in in that. So now let's talk Daybell. Yeah, so you're seeing them and you're like, yeah, there's a lot of similarities here, even though, you know, we don't know everything that's going on there, but you you probably can see it. I mean, you've spent all these years 
investigating and studying these people. And now here comes Chad Daybell, who's mentioning who's who's a self-proclaimed prophet, right? And he's also saying, hey, Lori, I've been married. You know, you we've been married several times before in multiple probations. Are you looking at this going, uh-huh, and almost... Um, not predicting what they're going to do, but you just can see the pattern, I guess, since I like to talk about patterns, but there is a pattern, isn't there? Oh, ab- absolutely. And, and uh, you know, there is, there is one of the most brilliant uh, PhDs that I know, Dr. Yanya Lelich, who uh, is emeritus professor from uh, Cal uh, State Chico. And, uh, and Yanya and uh, Dr. Margaret uh, Thaler Singer, uh, authored a book about it's called Colts in Our Myths, and I think I have a quote from that in like the third or fourth page of my book there in the section you have, Linda. But um, that she mentions, in fact, let me just read this because I think yeah. it's just so I think perfect. On the top, right? Like you had it um, as a quote on the top before you got into the writing. Yes. So uh, she said, uh, um, "Oh darn it! I thought I was there." All right, here we go. Uh, Quote, we know that people can be led to buy almost anything. In addition to buying almost anything, people can apparently be led to believe almost anything. Cults know that if you knew from the get-go what you were in for and why, you would never join. It's as simple as that. And so one of the first things and one of the first characteristics when I look at a cult and look at the Daybell case or others is the command and control structure. This idea uh, that someone is uh, godlike or, or the focus of all the attention and that the members, by being a part of this, have some kind of elitist kind of uh, position in the in in the world itself because they believe this secret ideology. Right, and I think I read too. I think this was also in the foreword, um, or maybe it was part of yours. And they, anyways, it made me think about Lori Vallow and how it's very similar. It seems where they they fake they fake their purpose, right? They fake that. You know, the, the God has talked to me and I, I think I know what we need to do. And he said this, so therefore I have credibility. Come with me, come learn what I know or, or believe. And then we'll, you know, everything will be happy flappy. And in the meantime, people are getting killed. Children are being buried in a yard and, um, and it's just a mess. It's a, it's a, it's a complete mess. And families are, are, basically what's the word besides annihilated yes but i'm talking about the other families are just destroyed by these actions of somebody who wants to for their own ego and their own um you know basically ego to it just starts with hey i have an idea we've been married before come over here and then it's just utter destruction and these people have to stop it's just like you stop these this cult in the nineties, it's the same thing here. This cannot continue. And how the heck does it still continue? And people, yeah. still, um, 
you know, and it's easy. Like you said, that one woman said who came into that office that day, she says, I was just trying to get away from my, from trying my. escape an abusive marriage. Yeah. And she ended up there and, and that wasn't her intent, but she ends up, you know, trying to get away from abusive marriage and just find love or acceptance or whatever it is that drives some people. And, and it was, and then holy crap, you're in this situation. And yeah, you know, it, it, it is so consistent. And when you think about the fact that there are five to 6,000 cults operating uh, in the U S and globally <clears throat> every single year. Uh, and you think about the collateral damage that's happened in the Daybell case, and then times that by 5,000 to 6,000, you think, how is this possible? And cults are not always religious, you know, and I, I, one thing I found kind of interesting, I live in Utah, so I'm, I'm right in the heart of uh, the Latter-day Saint faith. And when I was at the attorney general's office, one of the first things I had to do is figure out, now, why are all of these crimes, um, uh, people are saying, well, that guy was a member of the Latter-day Saint faith. And I remember I was, I was kind of grieving through this process with an investigator from Chicago who was doing the exact same thing. And he started laughing. He said, dude, he said, I am so glad to hear this because he said, I'm Catholic. And he said, everybody in Chicago in these cases, because we have a huge Catholic population, are yeah. saying it's the Catholics doing it. Right. And it isn't. It's perverted, predatory yeah. personalities that are taking whatever they have used or learned as a child that they prostituted and they use that to somehow add some kind of level of credibility to what right. they are. And so to everyone out there, I just I, I want to just say in defense of the Latter-day Saint faith, who I am just uh, uh, um, like in Shreve, they, they, they have people who get involved in bad things, but they try to police and excommunicate them from their ranks and move them on. My experience has been whether I'm in Norway and I've been in Norway working on these kinds of cases or whether I'm in Salt Lake City or I'm in Vancouver, um, it is taking something and uh, and twisting it and turning it and yeah. using it as a way to keep power and control over other people. But yeah. it is not it is not an indication because if you think about the Daybells or the Zion Society or pick a cult, cults that are destructive are focused on the leader and all of that. You look at standardized um, traditional mainstream religions across the world, and I don't care what religion it is, they're focused outwardly and on a higher power. Correct. And they may call that power different names. But that's the difference between a cult that's focused on David Koresh or Jim Jones or Arvin or... Chad Daybell and Lori. But now imagine those two uh, goofy kids getting together, Chad and Lori, and you got two people that think they're gods right. coming together. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yes. And that's what one of the things like I've done over a hundred videos in the Vallow case. And that's one of the things I always stress and is listen, just because they're using the LDS religion, which they're not, they're like, they're just starting at that and then they're branching out to whatever the heck they want. Doesn't mean that's the LDS religion. And so I do make it clear. Yeah. And a lot of people say, please let it clear. I said, I do. Because they take even 
let's say the Book of Mormon, and they read it could be anything. They could they could read liter literally, you know, uh, Mary had a little lamb, and turn it into well, I'm supposed to kill the lamb and eat it and have it for dinner. That's what it says in there, you know. And you're like, no, that that's not what it says in there. But Lori, <laughs> right? They take it and they go, see, it's in there. It says it because they spun it twist it and make it their own. That's what I did in my little secret society video. It's just like, you, man, you know, just, just twist it. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in that case. I still follow it like crazy. And there's some new information coming out, which you guys are going to see more videos on that. Uh, but right now I've been focused on this Orin and Orson West. And one sec before we get into that, because Shelby has to, <laughs> Shelby has to make a comment about your dimples. My no, uh, they used to be more pronounced, but this face is getting fatter with age, and that's it's uh, they're going they're going away. And I'll just tell you, um, the the way I got the job uh, in the county attorney's office, uh, I had a woman who uh, confessed to a murder to me. And uh, after I, when I was booking her in jail, I called her lawyer up and I said, "Okay, your 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 client just confessed to to uh, executing a, her lover's wife, and and uh, she wanted me to tell you that." And he, you know, yelled at me, "Don't talk to her anymore," and and hung up. He became the county attorney, and uh, he. Uh, he, he immediately called me and offered me the job. And he said, it's because of that baby face of yours. And he says, every judge in the County believes you can't tell a lie. So, so <laughs> these have uh, helped me well. And I hope that it's actually accurate that I don't tell lies. So. Everybody loves the dimples. <laughs> That's awesome. <clears throat> okay. Let's get into Orin and Orson West. Yeah. Man, I have, I have really appreciated your deep dive and the way you've dissected things in that case. If you've noticed, I've been really pretty quiet about that case, and I've watched you and other YouTubers as you've talked through it, and and uh, certainly have laid out the case in in a very clear and concise manner. I do my best. I really do my best. Oh no, yeah, it was great. Thank you. One of the things, um, there's been so many questions on that. And sometimes, as you've probably heard me before say, like, when something bothers me, I know to keep continuing and, and try and dive deeper. Obviously, um, many people are upset about the parents' interview. What were your thoughts or takeaways from that interview? Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've really looked closely at that. And uh, I, Again, I mean, I, I spent a long time uh, learning how to profile criminal cases. Yeah. One thing that I learned early on was that you need more information to accurately profile anything. A 13-minute video is pretty tough. Um, and I know that there are things that bug me, and and I know bugged you, Linda, because I've watched your segments. I think I've heard others <clears throat> talk about it, that I guess I have to cast – a little bit of caution into the wind on things like uh, folding his arms uh, and comparing him to someone else who's folded his arms. And the fact that we read once in our, our book on body language, that that means I'm closed off. And, you know, th those are all absolutely accurate things. But when we're dealing in criminal cases, you have to also plan on the anomaly. I talk a lot about possibility and probability. So is it possible that they're lying 
holy cow, it's really possible that they're lying. Um, and uh, But are there reasons for it? I don't know this guy's personality. I don't know the dynamic in the relationship between the two of them. So I, like you, have to look at it and say, but as a reasonable person, what would a reasonable person be doing? Would they be more frantic? Would they be more? And, and that becomes a really slippery slope for us as we investigate cases, because our natural tendency is, and again, this is all King doctrine, by the way, but, <laughs> but our natural tendency is to project our own belief systems. I would be upset. I'd be out looking. I'd tell the police, I don't care if you want me to stay in the house. I'm going to look. That doesn't mean someone else would be that way. Right. And so, so we have to look at it and say, okay, I'm going to evaluate it and I'm going to put it up on the shelf as information that I'm going to compare against other things. And I, I often talk about on my channel that there are four forms of evidence that are really um, used in every kind of criminal case. Uh, there are things like uh, that witness statement. There's yeah. forensic evidence, physical evidence. There's circumstantial evidence like in um, Suzanne Morphew's case. Um, but successful criminal cases rely on multiple forms of evidence, not a single one. And so then we start saying, okay, then I got to learn more. And so as I watched that interview, I kept having to force myself to not let my emotional side make decisions and say really interesting behavior that I'm going to write a note about because I want to learn more about how this guy responds. I want to see other interviews. I want to find out what he does when he's comfortable, when he's not. I remember interviewing a woman in a murder case of a baby and, uh, you know, a, a lot of inexperienced investigators will go right in and say, you know, did you kill the baby? And, and I remember going back and starting back with, with growing up and her, her uh, teenage years and then talking about what her first kiss was like, because that's when I started to see the behaviors that tell me the truth. And then I could start interjecting questions that I knew were going to be deceptive responses and see how the body changes a little or what it does. That's the secret to profiling and, and understanding uh, in these interviews. And yet you can't take away from that gut check that just says, sometimes the gut just says, uh-uh, that, that dog isn't hunting, you know? Yeah. So, so there's, there's my long-winded way of saying no, nothing in the course of answering. It's great. Um, I mean, when you look at it, though, and they, they start to talk, a lot of people just know there's just this feeling, right? I'm the nerdy patterns. I bring out the patterns, but then I go, okay, what's next? And we see a video of Trezell parking his vehicle out in the front. He, he says in the interview, here's what I did. I looked for the children, but yet there's no children on surveillance, no children's surveillance on the front. Uh, they come out, they go, sorry, the 4.30 p.m., the lights come on, flick on and off, on and off. Um, and then three minutes later, he climbs in his van and then shoots off, does a loop, comes back within six minutes. And then for 13 minutes, does not look around the yard. Now, yeah. I realize everybody is different. You know, one person might go, I'm not wasting 30 seconds and I'm calling the cops. Maybe I would look around going, well, maybe he's at the neighbors. Maybe he's over here. Maybe he's over here, but I'll go check and then call the cops. Right. So, but 
15 minutes standing and doing nothing and neither his wife, red flag, wouldn't you think? Oh, abs- absolutely. And I, I wouldn't disagree on that. You know, one one thing that I picked up on that really hasn't been talked about much, this is just, again, you know, the, the King Doctrine side sharing my ideas. Um, when I went and looked through those videos and watched the timeline, watched him in the backyard, um, the, the, all of that uh, kind of uh, seemed, okay, I can I can take it either way. Um, I was troubled, too, uh, by the fact that he was getting in from the passenger door of yes. the van. And yet, w- rather than, than, you know, making it something, you know, nefarious, my thought was, okay, is he, is he doing it purposely to avoid something like the idea of there may be CCTV across the street and someone's videotaping? Uh, or is it just functional? Is the door broken? And that's the only door they can get in and out of. I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but but it's the kind of the things that that I say. Okay, so yeah, let's awesome. think behaviorally. Is it just because the door's broken that I'm climbing over the seat, or is it because I'm trying to avoid detection? Um, now there were there was some question I I heard you you uh, mentioning the fact of you know flipping the light on and off. Yeah, think sure. about the fact that the camera has now made the migration from day vision to night vision. And, um, and so it's a different kind of optic. And, and now I, uh, this is something I would just propose as another option in this is now as the front door of a lit house is opened and then closed, would that create that same splash of light that we're thinking, well, is he turning a light on and off or is it actually just an artifact of a natural movement from a lit environment to a dark environment. And so I start looking at things from that perspective and I think, okay, so now I've got to think about, because again, I, I spent a lot of time looking at behaviors when I look at these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, not troubled at all by uh, the van. And um, I even think, uh, I think it was brought up on your show the other night, something that I picked up on immediately. And that was just, look at the driveway. That's normal behavior for the way that they come in and out of that house. If you go back and look at the old uh, images from uh, uh, Google over time, or you look at uh, the images for the home to be for sale, that family traditionally parked dead on in the driveway. And it was probably guests who came through the roundabout. Um, But again, is it important or not? I don't know, but it's kind of an interesting, significant thing that you say, okay, I mean, maybe it's just lazy and it's easier to pull through and drive straight instead of having to back up each time. So then I started looking at the driving pattern and that became really interesting to me because he um, immediately exits the home and then turns and goes uh, eastbound, I think. East and then Makes a right. Yep. And then he comes from the other direction. And uh, so um, I thought, and you, you want me, sh- can I share something on the screen? Yeah, I'm not sure if you could do it from yours, but we can definitely show it. Let's see if I can pull it up. Let me know if you can, if it can share on yours. Let's see here. I want to see if I can. Uh... Is it going to share? If not, I can show, I can share my Google maps. There we go. Let's try that. Just tell me if that oh, happens. Yeah, to her. There we go. Is What's it? that? Okay, let's see how we can. There. Beautiful. 
Okay. So, so I just looked at that and, and I actually kind of put together some stuff to kind of look at it a little closer. First, um, I, I, I uh, wanted to look at just that driving pattern and, yeah. uh, and how they were, he was moving through that street. And so we see that he, uh, oh, this is the wrong video. So let me just hit on this real quickly. Cause then I'm going to pause for a second. Um, I, I wanted to look at what the funnel was that the children would walk if they actually left the yard. And I just thought it was interesting. This is the the entrance to the backyard from the side of the house. Uh, yeah. And every yard around there is fenced. And so there's really no place these kids could have gone other than just follow the funnel and get back out on the street and then, and then head off into the woods. And, uh, and that was kind of the important thing I wanted to show there. And maybe what I'll do is send you some pictures back of, of the pattern, but I did an analysis of the drive pattern and uh, I, I'll send you a little uh, image, but I, I created a, a footprint that that vehicle could have traveled in that amount of time based on the road networks and the dirt roads. And it all of a sudden made more sense to me why he went one particular direction and came back another. And that just has to do with, with uh, entry onto those main thoroughfares, in my opinion. Okay. So it's just basically he, because he went once, comes back, waits for 13 minutes, cops arrive, they go off in that way. And then he does it again. Is that strange? Is that like, no, that could just be him doing it again. No. And that's just his thought process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know the answer. I mean, um, I just wanted to try to understand if there was a method to it. I got to leave yeah. for a minute to fit my narrative, if that's the case. If, yeah. And and so it was easy to figure out the most probable path that he would have taken. Um, without question, you get into goofy territory Why he comes back frantic for the search of his children and stands in the roadway. So th that becomes a real big red flag like we talked about, and, and it has to be explored further. And then why it's repeated or he does it again, unless it's just to try to get an assessment of what's happening in the area. Or maybe comb again, or, or who knows what he said to the officers. Maybe he said they, they could have gone that way. I mean, he could have said anything, but they did go off in that direction, right? So yeah. I mean, both of them. The other thing, uh, back to the vehicle, my question would be is, um, and I, I've said this before, is the way Trezell parked, we'd have to know if he always parked like that. Like you mentioned, if he always parked like that, then there's there's nothing to go on on that. But if he's never parked like that, and he did on the Saturday and the Monday, then I would question more. So why are you parking like that all of a sudden? Maybe on Saturday to get the kids in, it's the side door, go, 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 go. But Monday, why are you doing that? Why are you climbing in the passenger side? Um, he did go in to the driver's side so the door isn't stuck because we did see him go after he talked to the police officers he went back to the van and then opened the drivers and got in so we know that oh, was okay. good so it is a little weird on that but um the big thing is okay he says this him and his wife are out there they're saying when they saw the children and now they have this video surface that mm, not so true and so now, um, uh, for lack of a better term, we're catching him in his lies. Yeah. Especially with the kids not coming out. So the question, where where are they? Now, a lot of people are saying, uh, I don't think they ever came to Cal City. Some are saying, no, they were there. 
The dogs came into the house. They, they caught their scent. Two questions on that. How do they know that was Orson and Orin's scent? Yeah. You don't, right? I mean, if I say to you, hey, Mike, yeah, check this scent. This is what they smell like. This is one of their their shirts or something. Yeah, the de- Department of Corrections, um, I know, has I have had dog handlers who have suggested that bloodhounds can take a specific scent and follow that. So it becomes questionable. What what was the um, what was the triggering scent that was given to the animal, or were they just right. looking? I, I don't I don't know those answers, you know. And and I go back even to the van. Now that you've said that, thanks for uh, clarifying that he got in the driver's door. So then the next question as an investigator that I want answered is: How do the door locks work? Are they automatic door locks? Do they not right. work? Is that a reason why he has to crawl through that way to get in? But once the door is open, he can pop it open. You know, I still want to isolate those questions. None of those questions take away from the goofiness of the behavior that we see when he shows back up or beforehand. And like you, I go back to were the kids ever there in the first place? And that's where the interview with the other children is going to be so important because according yeah. to the neighbors, they haven't seen them. No, but from my understanding, um, there was a neighbor also interviewed on a YouTube channel uh, and they were talking about how, you know, they kind of kept to themselves even even in prior. They were the neighbors and they seemed to uh, keep to themselves and not go out a lot. My question is, too, is if it was so dark and cold out or if it was cold out that day, why are you putting two children on a patio with cold cement where they're going to sit their bums down on there? And right. I mean, realistically, and three and four years old, they, they are, they move. And especially little boys from my experience, because I have two boys, I don't have girls. So all the girls I see around little ages, like, man, they sit so nice. (laughs) Mine's are all, right. Three and four years old playing with chalk. Uh, One of the things uh, I keep thinking about is if they were playing with chalk, can you get prints from chalk? You know, I don't, I don't believe there would be, um, Number one, it's going to dry the oils in the hand so quickly, for one thing, that that I wonder about that. Um, I did see uh, the one video that was posted by a YouTuber of looking at the aerial drone imagery of no chalk and then later chalk being staged there and then a different color of chalk. And I had some opinions there. Number one is it's pretty hard to... I mean, I'd love to see what the crime scene photos look like um, to see if they actually did get any pictures of chalk on there. It was clear that from the drone imagery that there wasn't a piece of chalk. The chair certainly has been changed, but that doesn't bug me because days have passed and people could bump and move those things. Um, If the other children have been taken into um, protective custody, then what would be the purpose of the chalk showing up later other than to be staged? Right. the fact that there's a different color didn't bug me too much, Linda, because I actually took that image and I went into Photoshop and I started changing contrasts and I changed the chalk color to a bunch of different colors. Uh, so, so that then I say, okay, well, is that just manipulated or changed because of, you know, how many times it's been uh, copied or repurposed or whatever, uh, screenshotted from a computer with a bad image or so I look at that and I say, really interesting, but is it evidence? And, but yeah. clearly, um, if there are no children in the home and the chalk showing up suddenly, that that would appear to be staging. But yeah, and I mean, the, I think the important thing is, is going back to that actual day was their artwork. I mean, they're playing with chalk, 
you're going to have some pretty funky pictures on that, like, you know, scribbles and whatnot on there on that patio. But there, there was zero children leaving. There was zero people picking them up and they weren't seen coming out of that yard. So now the question is, why? Why are they having this story? Why are they explaining themselves in this manner? Right. Why? Yeah. They're, yeah. they're not telling the truth. We don't know why, but we want to know why. I mean, it's very bizarre. And on Saturday, we don't know who, uh, which children they were that went into the van, but there were four heads that were popping into the van. We don't know at this point um, who who those children were. We just know there was four heads, right? So we don't know Orin and Orson. However, there's only four. And the other thing is, why would they choose Monday? Uh, to call the cops. Let's say there is some, you're smiling already on this. You know, let's say they're already, uh, let's say they are involved, if they are involved. Why would they choose that time? To me, if they did not come, and this is me thinking out loud, if they did not come to California City in September, why are they choosing December 21st as that day? Um, and that's where I wanted to know about that van. Is it always how he parked or is this an anomaly where he doesn't usually like think of the CW thing, right? He never parks it in the driveway. Yeah. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? You, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you got a, a uh, one in seven chance of picking a day to do things. And I know that, that um, you have found that a lot of things are happening on Monday, I guess, why? If you put in totality crimes, they're all going to fall on one day more heavily than yeah, another. Yeah. Um, now, that, just in general, of that day to choose. Yeah, Monday, but you know what I'm saying? Like, why? Why the 21st of December? Yeah. So, I, well, I look at I look at Mondays though more significantly from the stressors of a weekend, and and you know, is one particular parent away at work, and then has to actually, you know, dads, when they come home by, by Monday, they're thinking I'd work five jobs rather than stay home and take care of the kids, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, whoever that primary caretaker is may look at weekends much differently than uh, someone else who goes to work Monday through Friday. But again, I don't, to me, those are questions that just need to be, to be asked and explored. Uh, the bigger question is, uh, leading up to Christmas, you know, I want to look at things like the evidence of what the credit card spending, the Amazon spending, the the shopping was in preparation for Christmas. Was there efforts actually days before or weeks before to buy Orson and Oren presents? Or was that package found in the field a perfect way to say, oh, look, we even had Christmas presents. So that you you can, but you can solve those kinds of questions with other forms of evidence, not just the fact that the kids aren't there. You know, there are things that would point to whether they have been preparing for and doing certain things. Um, wh what what did we see beforehand in other locations? What um, are the children that are there telling us? What are the caseworkers, if in fact there are still any caseworkers? on the adoption what's the status of the other kids and and you start looking at and i always look at the money train where yeah. the children a process to get additional funds from state to to help supplement income uh, or were these something entirely different and so you have to just kind of start looking at this in totality and i often use a painting uh, as an example of if we just took one brush stroke of the painting 
it, it just wouldn't look very cool. It, it's not until we see all the brush strokes that things really yeah. start to come to us, you know, like a puzzle. Exactly. And the, that's just, I guess that's been racking my brain and a lot of people's brains. Like why that, like, why then? And you also have children in the home. I mean, it's pretty uh, gutsy in a way if these children have been missing for four months, how do you, how do you backtrack on that with other children? You know, cause they, They'd be like, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen my brothers for how long? So I don't know at this point, because I teeter whether they they were, they did come or they didn't. I mean, just because they weren't seen in the yard doesn't necessarily mean they weren't in the home. It could have been, you know, three and four, they didn't want to let them out. It could be. But there is some reason why they're lying. And that's the biggest thing. Um, and yeah, I I mean... Yeah, and and, uh, and and you're able to corroborate comments made by the, the husband and wife against video that you have that says, no, that, that doesn't fly. Uh, again, the behavior of standing in the roadway, if you're frantically looking for your children for 10 minutes, is a, a, a big question mark and keeps taking me back to were they ever in the home. Uh, and of course, thankfully, police keep things close to the cuff. But uh, what was what was uncovered in that search is going to become really important. What was uncovered in the in the testimony of the other children as they talk to them is going to be really important. And if mom and dad are talking to them, and I suspect they are, how are the stories evolving as they try to fix things that didn't sound right? Right. Because we did see the police chief even say, you know, Trizel told me uh, he was searching for 15 to 20 minutes before he called. And so we see the whole search took all of six minutes and then 13 minutes hanging out by the tree waiting for the the um, police to arrive. So I'm sure the chief's like, well, wait a minute. Right now, one of the other things is, is <clears throat> the FBI came into the yard and they started digging the digging into the yard. If they never believe the children, I guess there's still preliminary, but this is my question was what I think about. Let me think out loud here. <clears throat> if they never thought the kids were ever in the in the house, would they necessarily still be digging in that yard? Yeah. Do we know uh, that the police dug those holes? Yes. They had it that the FBI were on scene and did it. Um, I'll show you here. Let's see if I can put us aside. I did this the other night with Chris and I couldn't do it. I don't know why. So, but do we know that they dug those holes? From the news is what they said they did. See, go back to that picture and zoom in on it. Have you ever seen pristine ground around a hole that was just dug without piles of dirt next to it? Zoom in on that. I don't know if I can zoom in. I don't think I can zoom in, Mike. Oh, maybe? No, I don't know. So um, here, here's what I, I would just propose. As I zoom in on those holes, and again, it's a pretty blurry picture when you start yeah. zooming in. Yeah. But here's something that troubled me is I don't know if the FBI or police dug those holes or if they weren't there already uh, for some weird reason, and and again, I don't know, 
uh, I'm just speculating and saying there are questions that I have because I don't see piles of dirt around those holes. If an otter had dug them, there would be a, a circle of dirt around each hole. If a human dug them, there would be big clumps of dirt around each hole. I Unless see. all of that dirt was hauled off by police. But those are really nice holes. Now, um, I found them. Yeah, and that, that kind of troubles me because then I started thinking, well, why then are the holes holes there? Do you have any other pictures of the backyard that show the yard in totality? Yep. Yep. Do you have any that show a different angle? Uh, because on the um, up at the very top end of that photograph, on uh, if you were to go from the holes that are dug in the yard, follow the two trees up toward the shed. Yep. Um, on the right side of the driveway is a square table. Yep. There's another one that's next to the house on the very top end of that photograph that you can see. Look at the spacing on those legs and look at the holes in the ground and tell me if that doesn't bug you a little bit That because I so superimposed that image of the legs and dropped it over the holes. and Like, like a cover. Like someone was building something, maybe it were they were they putting in a grape vineyard rack, or were they putting in um, poles to have a ladder for kids to climb, you know, hang from? And I'm just I'm just creating stuff in my mind, Linda, to try to help understand because I didn't see dirt around those holes, and I'm thinking, but this is the same size as these others. Is is there a is there an explanation for them? Or is it nefarious and that they thought, let's probe and look and see if we can get any kind of scent or tissue. And so that kind of is, you know, again, this just my goofy analytical mind looking at these cases and saying, yeah, there you go. Look at those legs. Yeah. And it's almost like, like how you said, if you brought it over and put it on top, the, the legs would go in the ground and they would just be that wooden plank. Yeah. You can see it. And do you see any dirt around those holes? No, because it almost looks like you see the indent as well, possibly, uh, if that's what I'm seeing, uh, how it's the lighter color, you know, right around the, the big rectangle. Yeah. Like, almost like a little bit in, but that could have been digging, but it could be similar to what, you, what you're showing. Like that looks like a tabletop dropped on it like a square <laughs> because it is square right around it. Why would it look square? square like that or would it yeah and and is that is that um shape and the coloration difference because there was sheets of plywood over it or a tarp over it that see there's a tarp in the yard right there um are there things that that explain away things that we're wanting to say there you go there's there's the yeah you know and here in this picture, you can see how that vehicle goes in and out the driveway the same way. If you look at that, yep. um, you can yep. you can really see the behavior emerging there. So again, just kind of an interesting thing to to reflect on and say, I want the answer to that now. Because what's also interesting is in the video surveillance, it looks where where he is standing beside the gate. He's not near that area. So that's what I found interesting is why that spot and not 
anywhere else? That was my question is like, hmm, why there? Why? Well, I wonder what they had gleaned to go there. And that's when I also think, well, do they still believe that they have, that the, ch that the children were there? I mean, we don't know, but uh, I just put two and two kind of thinking, huh, they're still digging. So, I mean, they have something maybe, but maybe it's uh, from from before, like if if the kids were never there, they still could pick up on a scent, correct? On the couch, maybe on something that they transported. They could they with the dogs. Yeah, you know, I think that would be a great guest to talk to. Um, I I I don't know uh, the dog business well. I know that um, that again, corrections will say a bloodhound can be scent specific, um, and of course they find people, but um, I, I just don't know. I know that a dog's sense of smell is incredible and maybe they can, but what was the originating fabric? And if they walked out with one of the other kids clothes and said, yeah, here was one of Oren's uh, favorite little uh, shirts to wear. And yet the other kids were wearing it. Is that a contaminated search or, you know, yeah. what, what, are they, what are they looking for? And were the dogs scent specific for, uh, for cadaver work or for a different kind of work? And, you know, those are all questions that at least I don't know the answer to, but they make you your mind just go crazy and think, I want to know the answer to this, this, this. And this. <laughs> but, but Linda, I keep going back to were they ever at the house? Was any of this um, staged to say it's now time to report because we've been uh, living off of the the state money that's coming in, but someone's wanting an accounting. So now we got to, we got to have a story. Um, so I think there's, uh, you know, all the devils in the detail, but I think it's going to be really clear when they finally come back with information about what, but again, I think it's going to be a case like Suzanne, it's going to be, um, does, does the uh, prosecutor have enough confidence in the evidence to do a circumstantial case? Yeah, because even we ha we see the chief say not a sh shred of physical, which I'm surprised he said that. But he said, yeah, not a shred of physical and a lot of uh, enough. He didn't say enough. He said they're circumstantial. Yeah. So we just there know bottom line is they're lying. And the question is about what and where are the boys, of course. And so uh, one of the things they were talking about this morning, I did a members live stream. We were chit chatting is they said Trezell's over at in uh, Bakersfield at the old apartments where his, where his mom is. And so um, what was interesting is she had mentioned, a neighbor had mentioned something about uh, wearing something around their waist, a monitor. But I, I, I thought, I don't, do they actually do monitors around your waist? It's like an ankle monitor. I, I was yeah. thinking maybe a Holter monitor or something on <laughs> to measure his heart. Maybe I don't know. That's weird. Right. Do they monitor? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah. I thought that was weird. I, I just immediately went to weird. I thought they just do ankle monitors or is it what other type of monitors would they put on somebody? Not saying he is monitored, but if for anybody who you want to uh, watch, is it just typically uh, ankle monitor? You know, um, I, I mean, bottom line is corrections will put a, an ankle monitor on someone who, who uh, they have taken through the system and the courts have determined that. Um, they haven't named 
these two, at least officially, as suspects in anything. That doesn't mean that they're not uh, tracking them in other ways if they have a court order. But uh, gosh, I've never, I've never heard of that. But you know, I'm I'm an old guy. I've been out of the business for a long time. So. <laughs> Technology goes fast. You never know. <laughs> yes, it does. Um. What what else can we say? Do you guys have some questions for Mike uh, before we finish off soon here uh, with this case or with his book or anything like that? Um, yeah, it's just one of these cases that people just there's so many unanswered things. And of course, we want to. Do you actually do you actually feel the same way? I mean, you have so much experience. But when you see a new case, are you trying to dig into it and really try and get to the meat and potatoes? Is that your natural instinct to do it? Or, you know, um, I, I, uh, I love to watch all of the rest of you jump in and uh, learn from from what you are finding. I do love to look into it. Um, but I look at it with a little different set of glasses. I mean, I, I investigated a lot of cases and then I, I've spent decades now um, interviewing serial killers and serial sexual predators um, and trying to understand the motivations and behaviors. Yeah. And I'm finding that my investigative experiences that I had early in my career have really magnified the questions that I have when I look at behavior. But but what I find is if, if I focus on victim first, the victimology, and I focus on what is it that's motivating the offender, yeah. then usually all the rest of the stuff just starts to fall in. And uh, so that's kind of the way I do things. And I mean, you saw how I look at goofy holes in the ground and other kinds of things is like, okay, is that probable? And what is there an explanation for that? Is there an explanation why I climbed through the driver or passenger door? Is there an explanation why I uh, leave a back gate open or, you know, whatever? Because that's going to give me a better insight into the, into the way in which the, the potential offender is putting it all together and what motivates them. And right now, if I were to look at this and think um, all of a sudden there's going to be accountability for some children that may or may not have even made it to California city, for instance, what's the motivation for now reporting and were there things backing it up or did all of a sudden some caseworker say, Hey, we're going to come out next week and check on Orson and, and Orin. Now I got to fix a problem. Because that's really what it boils down to. When criminals make mistakes is when they got to fix a problem, yes. especially an organized criminal who's worked out all the things. I mean, we see it in a couple of other cases we've talked about in the past where, you know, all people got to do is watch YouTube true crimers or CSI on Thursday nights to figure out what I could do in a controlled, organized way to get away with something. Right. But it never works out perfectly like our fantasy. Right. The fantasy is never, ever going to match up. And, and, and that's what keeps um, criminals making mistakes and keeps them having to return and repeat, especially in repeat offenders, is that reality is never as cool as fantasy because there's always something broken in it. And when there's something broken, 
then we can capitalize on that and use that and and incriminate uh, people's testimony and other things. Um, I, I just want to say kind of as closing, I, I've, I've been troubled as I watch. Um, I, I love what YouTube has done. And you hear me keep saying uh, public CSI, crowdsourced intelligence. Um, I think it's so critical that we we continue to capitalize on what the public can bring from an intelligence standpoint. But I'm a little concerned when I see some people saying, no, the I should be investigation because I worry about people who aren't trained going into crime scenes or other places and doing things. And while they might uncover some really valuable stuff, if it damages what law enforcement's trying to do methodically, that's that's a really slippery slope. And, and I'll just close with an experience I had once. Uh, I was serving as a tactical officer and was responding to a duplex. <clears throat> and I happened to tap on the wrong door, Linda, two doors side by side. And I just got tunnel vision and I tapped on the wrong door to ask a question of a witness of something pretty mundane. Well, the door next to me opened up and a gun came out and the guy pulled the trigger up against my head. And thankfully, the gun dry fired, which means the round didn't go off, which is pretty obvious because I have no severe brain damage or I'm still alive. But, um, but you know, I, I, of course, arrested the guy and, and took him down. Well, he was a serious offender who thought I was there for him. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I worry about people that just willy-nilly show up and start investigating on their own. This is serious business, and this is real. And uh, I love gathering intel, but it should be handed to the right people. And then folks like you and me and others, we can speculate on what it means from a public standpoint. But I, I just worry when we, we go too much in pursuit of getting that next subscriber. Yeah, there's a line. Um, I could see that because, uh, you know, one one small move, like you said, could could prove lethal. One small move could wreck the case for children, adults. Um, I, so I can I can understand where you're coming from, and I can see that. One of the things I, I've said before that I believe with YouTube, the beautiful part is we are getting the story out there. We are doing our best to help. But you're right. There is a line where we have to be careful. And, you know, I'm sure I, I know someone who would definitely not want to see my face in Salida. <laughs> and I don't think I want to go to Salida either because I'm, you know, I know that would not be good. Yeah, but but the the reasoning is right. And it's for the victim. We just, yeah. I mean, the fact that we keep cases in the public eye, someone will come forward. Uh, next month, I'm launching a big podcast series in Southeast Asia that we've been working on for some time. Part of that is a 70-year-old homicide that uh, we believe we've cleared because we brought back uh, the case and revisited it, and someone finally had the courage to come forward. That's where people like you and me can make a difference, is keeping something in the public eye in hopes that someone gets the courage to step up and call the local police department and say, I was there when that happened and now I'm no longer afraid. And this is what the case is all about. And you, and now you, I know you have another book called Jane 
And that's the one with your great-grandmother or gra great-grandmother, correct? Great-great-grandmother murdered 130 years ago. Yeah, I tell you, do you have another copy? I went to go look, but it was like $90 for your copy of Jane. I know. And so I the good news is um, I've completely rewritten Jane. It's going to have a different title, and uh, it's going to be released in probably uh, the next three or four months. And uh, we'll talk more about how family history can be used to solve crime problems and, uh, and it will talk about Jane's murder and how I solved that murder 130 years later. It's a pretty spectacular story. I'm fascinated by that. As you know, I'm crazy into genealogy. Yeah. I actually have uh, had a match a year ago, not with crime, but uh, an adopt adopted cousin. She didn't know who her family was. And I found out where she belonged in the tree by doing my little research investigative and have found her and, and right down to like, uh, I know exactly where she is. And um, isn't so that amazing? It, you know what the incredible part is, is that I had connected with, uh, my one cousin a year ago, two years ago. And then in the last year I had been connected with her and I started going, well, I know we're two times great grandparents, but wait a minute, I think you're closer than we think. And then I did the investigation, figured out, and then I got chills right now. It ended up being their half sister and half brother of these two that I just happened to separately talk, talk to and have linked them together. So our grandparents- and it's just amazing. So I, I just, something like that, just, I don't know what it is. It's just something in my core that I absolutely love doing. And now I have two new cousins and all the way up. And she has now figured out who her family is and can say where she fits in the tree. And I started looking on her other side to her mom's side as well, which is a mystery, but I'm figuring through cousins how to match that. So what is something, uh, do you know where I could actually dive into or figure out how I could help out in that manner or learn, or is there anything I could, or just kind of. In, in, in genealogy in particular? Yeah, just with DNA. Oh, I'll tell you what. Now, again, I mean, here I'm I'm the guy in Utah, but um, there's a program called FamilySearch.org. Yeah, I know that of it. Is free to use, and uh, if anyone has a, uh, um, if they if they can look up in their community, there should be a genealogical link through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. And those folks will volunteer to help you figure out how to start your genealogy and start researching and going through Ancestry.com or um, all of the other platforms. And if you go to those centers that they have, you can go in there for free and they'll give you access to Ancestry and all the others that cost 300 bucks a year or something to be a part of. But you get you get to use it for free and you just take your your uh, jump drive home with you when you're done and, and uh, you, you, you get some pro that's, you know, an 80 year old person. And if you, if your roots are from Denmark, they'll say, we'll have someone who knows uh, Danish history come yeah. and help you figure out how to go through the roles. So um, that's, that's what I've done with mine. And I've been able to go back uh, and and uh, fill almost the entire thing 
and and I just go down and I grab one of those old uh, tykes down there at the family search center, and I say, "Here's the challenge that I'm facing," and uh, cool. and they'll give you some instruction. It's all free, and and uh, and you know some people worry, well, will the LDS Church take the information? Um, the church has a very stringent policy that says that you can only do research for your own family. So, you know, unless, you know, you're related to the person that's helping you, they're never going to know what you're doing. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool. I've done it. My roots are in Europe, so it's a little more uh, difficult to find. But uh, I just finished doing a 23andMe um, um, match, match as well. And usually I do with Ancestry, but it was so fascinating because I did the health profile, but it was fascinating on some of the things. It's like, you are more likely to have frizzy hair in humid, in humid conditions. And I started laughing because my hair literally goes like crazy curly. <laughs> That's funny. And, uh, I found out I'm like 2% Egyptian and I have... Um, um, my dad's a little 1% Nigerian and we have all these... Uh, Egyptian and Middle Eastern and Italian and Maltese. And it's just like this crazy mix. So it's just really cool to see. Um, and then of course, meeting all my ancestors and trying to figure out how, or my cousins and then figuring out how the heck they link up. So it's pretty cool. And all of a sudden you see, uh, you see, I think it was uh, Shakespeare that said, um, the, the purpose is understanding the greatness that runs in your veins. And, uh, and we, we, uh, we have, you know, some of us may have some, uh, some horse thieves in our background. That doesn't mean we have to become the horse thief, right. but, we can say, but I do have greatness and I can rise to that greatness. And without them, there wouldn't be us. That's right. <laughs> that's how I say it. Well, thank you so much, Mike. It has been such an awesome time on here. Everybody is is uh, just loving the show. I can see you guys are loving it. And uh, we'll definitely have you on again. And uh, remember to order uh, Mike's Mike's book, Deceived. And hopefully you guys can just stick that link in there. I might still have it. Yes. I might still have it there as well. I'll put that up and subscribe to Profiling Evil if you haven't done so already. And we have lots of new stuff coming up in the show here on It's a Crime. There's going to be more videos, as you know, and uh, I'm going to be up my upping my game this year. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, I hope you'll come over Wednesday for a couple minutes. Just bomb in and say hello. And, uh, and folks, come, come, and, uh, come and hear about the Children's Justice Center. Yes. And what time, what time would you like me or you just let me know that on? So um, I'll, I'll have, uh, I'll have the back office let you know. I just, you know, this is the problem. I just do what I'm told, Linda. And I think it's going to be about seven mountain is what I'm thinking. Okay. I'll be available anyway. So I'll figure that out. That'd be great. Thank <laughs> you. And thank you so much for uh, letting me come on. And uh, yeah, it was my debut of talking about Orson and Orin. I just uh, been kind of holding it in the quiver listening. So hopefully there was something new that we added. Yes, absolutely. It's always great to hear your insights and thoughts about it and, and look at it from different aspects and uh, makes me think. So <laughs> makes thank everybody you. think, right, you guys? Thank you so much, you guys. And we will see you soon. Have a great day, great weekend. And yeah, we'll see you soon. Bye.